You are listening to The Mother Good Podcast, episode number 34. I'm your host, Emily Carney. We at Mother Good believe that there's no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. Our content is judgment-free within the context of evidence-based research. Welcome to another episode of the Mother Good Podcast. Today's guest is Ogechi Akalaberry, and she teaches diversity as part of her job as a Christian service coordinator at the school she teaches at. And she also teaches catechesis at her church to seventh and eighth graders. So she has a lot of experience teaching elementary school children and preteens, specifically in the areas of social justice. I decided not to air an episode last week because it seemed a little inappropriate to air an episode on a completely different topic other than race or racism since that was just floating around so much on social media and in the news and it seemed like it was on everyone's mind. So I really wanted to just take some time to think about the best approach and how to address the topic on our podcast and also feature someone on our show who is well-versed in the area of social justice. Now, I will admit that I was a little nervous about doing an episode on this topic because I obviously am no expert in race race and racism. I mean, I did take a black history class in college, but that was over 10 years ago. I've read several books on diversity, but I'm in no way expert and I don't consider myself an expert. And also just in paying attention to all the conversations that have been going on in the past few weeks, I noticed that the verbiage and what is socially acceptable to say has changed actually since I took classes and read books. And I don't know, maybe I just didn't read the right ones. (laughs) So anyway, I just decided to have Ogechi come on and talk about race, racism, and social justice. I mostly wanted to have this episode just so I could listen and learn, and so all of you could also just listen from an educator, a woman of color, and someone who is well-versed in the area of social justice to hear her take on everything that has been going on in the last few weeks. This episode also isn't meant to be political in any way, although... I feel like no matter how neutral that, uh, you know, that we've tried to be in this episode that someone probably is going to get offended at some point and that is okay. Uh, It's interesting because I just saw a recent meme that someone shared how they're frustrated where, you know, if you're silent, then you're judged because you're not supporting the cause. And if you speak up and say something, then people judge you for saying something incorrectly. If you speak up in favor of the protests, not necessarily the rioting, but just the protests, the peaceful protests, then people say that you're supporting violence. And if you're against the rioting, then you're more worried about property and lives, etc. I'm sure you've all seen the arguments on social media. So this episode isn't going to get into any of this and it's not meant to. So if you infer that from our discussion, that's not the intent at all. The sole focus on this is just race, racism, and education for ourselves as mothers, and most importantly, how we can educate our children on these issues since this is an episode for mothers. I also recently saw a quote by Oscar Romero that said that, you know, that a church that doesn't provoke any crisis, a gospel that doesn't unsettle, a word of God that doesn't get under anyone's skin, a word of God that doesn't touch the real sin of the society in which it is being proclaimed, what gospel is that? And, you know, not to make it necessarily overtly Christian, but just to bring it back to the discomfort that some of you might feel during this episode, that that's perfectly okay. I just wanted to 
have all of us, especially those who are white and not necessarily raised in a diverse way, to ask ourselves some hard questions and also make some real change in our lives. So I wanted to bring that up too, that it's okay to just listen and reflect and use this time to form an opinion. I know that that's basically the the phase that I'm at right now. I'm just reflecting and listening. And so that's why I really appreciate my conversation with Ogechi because it was just so wonderful to listen to her perspective. Finally, I wanted to say that it's still possible to educate ourselves about race, racism, and social justice and support cops. And we support cops at the very same time as educating ourselves on all these issues. I do think that one thing we can all agree on is that it's very important as mothers to educate our children, starting from a young age, on the importance of inclusion and diversity and having, for example, books that we can read our toddlers and our young children that feature faces that don't look like ourselves because children pick up on those cues starting as young as I think it was a study that I saw like six months, you know, children start to recognize a difference in race. As mothers, it is our responsibility to teach our children that they are kind, respectful, accepting, and just. And that's something that I know that each and every one of us agree on. And so in summary, this episode isn't meant to be political in any way. The sole focus is on education, educating ourselves and our children and listening. Ogechi also recommends some really good books and we link them in the show notes to her list of books that she recommends. I know that these books are something that we can all implement into our everyday lives and teach our children from these books so that we can raise a generation who is even more just than the last. So with that, without further ado, here is my amazing conversation with Ogechi. Ogechi, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm so glad to have you on and thank you again for agreeing to come on last minute. I just felt like that this was a very timely, important topic to cover, especially in the light, uh, in light of the past, uh, of the events of the past few weeks. So could we first start off by just learning a little bit about yourself and so you can introduce yourself to everyone? Hi, so my name is Ogechi and I am a woman of many t- titles. Um, I wear a lot of hats, but I work as a Christian service coordinator, so my job is to help tie service learning into the school environment and have people be people, have my students be people of service. And I think that applies a lot to today's topic as well as a means to help people be more empathetic to those outside of their circle of existence. I'm also a catechist at my local parish. I'm a competitive power lifter and a content creator. Um, one of the things that I do to share my faith is to create content for another multimedia platform on social media. That's great. And so it sounds like that your role as a Christian service coordinator, does it involve a lot of social justice or maybe you could just briefly explain a little bit more about your job duties there? Yeah. So technically my job duty is to connect students with organizations where they can do service. We Many schools have a service requirement and our school is one of them. And um, for me personally, what I like to bring into the position is that service learning aspect. So it's not enough for us to have students check off the box for their hours, but I want them to really be transformed by the service they do and the experiences and the encounter that they received through those service hours. And hopefully set a fire for them so that they can figure out ways to incorporate service throughout their life. 
Definitely. No, that's very important to do that. So I guess we could just start by jumping in then about the topic of race and racism that's been so prevalent in the past couple weeks in the media. And to be honest, I, you know, I personally have struggled with what to say on this subject. I, I was just very, really surprised with um, how much the narrative has changed and what's politically correct and not correct to say. So I, I realized that, you know, things that I, I, you know, that everyone was saying 10 years ago, I guess they're not, they're not good enough to say such as saying, you know, that you're not racist. I guess it's, we have to say that um, we're anti-racist now. So all just all these different subtle things that, you know, are completely new to me, even though 10 years ago in college, I, I did take a black history class and I've always been very fascinated with, you know, different ethnic groups and read books about it. So, I mean, I feel like I wasn't like too out of the loop, but just the events of the past couple of weeks, I just realized, wow, like a lot has changed recently. So I need to talk with someone about this. So I figured we could start off by um, just talking about what do we mean by racism and then just having you explain the power structure and then the three parts of, of racism. So when we speak about racism, it always involves privilege plus power and privilege. Everybody has their versions of privilege. Um, Maybe me being an American citizen, I have a little bit more privilege than someone that is not because of my ability to vote and to have access to means that someone that would not be, that is not a citizen would have. And so we, when we talk about privilege, we all have versions of privilege. But when we talk about white privilege, there's a power associated with that and the power to act against someone that is of a minority race in a negative way is where racism comes into play. And there's actually, for me, there's three parts of racism. There is that personal interpersonal racism. So my conversations with my neighbor that might be white and how they interact with me on a personal level. There's institutional racism, which plays a part in the justice system, or we might see it in the education or healthcare system. And the combination of both those interpersonal interactions and that institutional racism leads to what is often called structural or systemic racism. And so um, sometimes people might say, I've never done something overtly racist, but they might have contributed from or benefited from institutional racism. And just that complicit benefiting is still contributing in a small way to the racist structure that this country has. And it actually exists all over the world. I'm glad you brought up the different types, you know, on the personal level and the institutional and the educational healthcare, because I was just actually talking with my friend the other day about this, how, you know, sometimes that we feel like our response on a personal level might be different than the response we should have, like on an institutional level. And I'd love to get your opinion on this too, um, since this was just kind of us just thinking out loud. So I know that for me, um, I know, I guess it's not politically correct to say like, I don't see color anymore because I've heard then that, you know, that blacks are people of color, that they don't have that privilege of not seeing color. So I I get that. Um, But I guess on a personal level, if you, you know, break it out into the three parts of racism that you were talking about, um, you know, I can see how on an institutional level, it's really important to see race and, you know, on the educational health care side as well. But on the personal level, um, I'd love to get your thoughts on if you think it's appropriate to see color or what that even means, because 
just in my personal experience, I was just reflecting on, you know, the different types of friends that I've had over the years. And it, it was kind of funny because I thought, oh, you know, I don't even know if I've had any black friends. And then I remembered that in law school, actually, all of my friends, like I, all of my friends were mostly black. And but I didn't even remember that because it wasn't even an issue to me, you know, like I didn't see the color of their skin as a reason to be friends or not be friends with them, if that makes sense. So we were just kind of thinking, well, maybe on a personal level, it's good not to see color because then you're just going to make friends with whoever you have things in common with, things in common with. And at the time that was just, you know, for some reason, I just had a lot in common with blacks, but then reflecting on it, I didn't actually even remember that they were black because I didn't. So I just love to get your thoughts too. Like, what does it mean to say like, you know, I don't see color and is that appropriate in any circumstances or, you know, should we maybe like break it out into those different types of, of power structures that you're talking about? Well, I personally don't think it's appropriate in any circumstance. So it sounds great to say I don't see color and it's it probably is like a great bumper sticker probably. But when you say you don't see color, you're also minimizing the beauty of diversity. It's almost like it's often used as a response to what people mean to say by I am not biased, that your color is not influencing how I behave towards you. And but what is received, and so this is a difference between intention and how it's received. And once you learn how it's received, you change your your words. And that's a beautiful thing that comes out of education and just really listening to that person. It may feel like it's comfortable for you to say, I don't see color, but it's very uncomfortable to hear because it's saying that the beauty of my black skin or the beauty of someone else's like caramel skin from being a Latina or um, their skin color or their distinguishing features from wherever their heritage comes from is um, not necessary. It's It's not needed. And that kind of influences how we are unable to really pinpoint the cancer that can be racism in the country because we almost want to blanket it and push it aside by that phrase. That's how it's perceived. But um, in or- instead of saying, I don't see color, your existence does not bother me. Your existence brings value, brings flavor to my life is a better response. My friends of different races' existence brings value and flavor to my life because that's the beauty of diversity. Um, It's almost like saying, I just see a garden. I don't see roses or lilies or um, I I don't garden because I have, I have regular plants, succulents that I can't kill, but (laughs) even like all green plants, I see them as different because one has leaves that sprawl out. One has leaves that shoot up. One has leaves that are nice and flat and thick. And I see the beauty and distinction in that. And recognizing the beauty and distinction of God's creation is important. It adds value to that person. When you don't see color or you say you don't see color, you don't see me as unique as I am. And so it's, again, sometimes when you've done or heard or felt something so long, it's easy to just want to hold on to it. But it's important to recognize that that phrasing can actually cause harm to people and to try to let it go or rephrase it in a way that's more affirming. Okay, no, that's really good to hear. Because again, like, I honestly didn't know that, you know, people of color actually wanted to be recognized for their 
their skin color. So that's, that's really good to know. So is that something that I guess on a personal level, would you actually like bring that up to a friend that's, you know, of diverse background or? Um, Growing up, probably not because I was always um, one of very few in my, um, even though where I grow up and where I live is very diverse um, just because of the nature of my school system. I was not, there were not many people that looked like me in my classes Um, And so I always struggled fitting in. And you can imagine being a teenager struggling to fit in and then also being racially different and ethnically different. I'm Nigerian American. There's a lot that that makes me different. My names for one. And so um, I experienced a lot of microaggressions. And when you say I don't see color, it is an example of a microaggression, just like, oh, my gosh, your name is just too hard to pronounce. I'm not even going to bother. That's a microaggression because my name has the actual meaning that's very beautiful and very important to me, and it ties to my culture. And my parents picked that name for a reason. Even if it sounds ridiculous, it's a part of recognizing that person's worth to be called by their name and called by their name correctly and doing them that honor of respecting them. And so all of that is... um, has been a part of my personal experiences as I grow older. I really want to model that for my students. And so I try to live that out in my day-to-day life by calling it out in the kindest way possible, but really being adamant about what it means to um, be an ally and be respectful and hope that people choose to change their habits. Uh, yeah, I like that you were saying that that's such a good point about you know having people make sure that they know how to pronounce your name and you know, taking the time to, to learn everything or everything that you're about like that, because I mean, I have completely unrelated examples that that that's happened. And so, you know, I'm not going to get into the details, but it does show that lack of respect, just as what you were saying that, you know, if someone can't take the time to just learn how to pronounce your name, I mean, and especially your name, that's like, that's the defining thing that identifies you and, and identifies who you are. So that's so important. Um, how about on the institutional level you were talking about, um, you know, that your privilege can on the institutional level, even though you haven't actively, uh, you know, contributed to it, but since you have that privilege that then institutionally you might be, and this, the part, I guess, is a white person, even though, I don't know, I sometimes, you know, I'm actually have kind of a diverse background myself, but I look white. Um, so as a white person, um, that kind of hit me hard because I thought, well, how, you know, can I, you know, change my actions so that I'm not going to be, I guess, part of this institutional or is there even a way? So a lot of people think of institutional and they're like, oh, well, those are the policies that were written. I had no part in those policies and they've tried, they choose not to look through it through a lens of individual responsibility within that institution. And one great example that I like to give is in the school system, everybody has access to education. Education is the great equalizer. But statistically, we know if you look up the stats that if a student is um, committing like a behavioral infraction, maybe they're yelling or acting out in class, a student of color will get a harsher punishment than a student that is not a color, a white student. Or for example, Black male students are less likely to be advanced in math and sciences, even though they test for those subjects high than their white or other race counterparts. Um, I've had that 
experience personally with my brothers. And even as a middle school and high school child, I recognized that disparity. I recognized that my brother being a jock was encouraged to just stick with basic level math. Well, he's now an engineering student. He wow. he took some time when he's going back to school. He is incredibly gifted and smart, but so much time was wasted because he was just told that it would be too advanced for him. Mm. And students that I knew that were not necessarily as gifted as him were advanced in those higher classes. And it's just that unconscious bias that you might have as an educator or unconscious bias that you might have as someone that works in um, law enforcement or someone that works in even something as simple as public transit. I've watched it. I used to take public transit for much of my life because of financial necessity and, you know, save the environment. Um, And if you watch someone getting on the bus, sometimes the bus driver will assume that a person of color didn't pay, but let someone, I've seen people slide by that didn't pay that were not of color. And those unconscious judgments come often from well-meaning people that will tell you that they don't see color, that they are not actively racist, but those biases have impacts, whether it's in education or even in being able to get the benefit of the doubt in a situation. Right. No. And I think that's so terrible. And again, I was talking with another friend just the other day, how to me, it's just so disgusting and appalling that segregation was legal until what, like a half a century or so, like a little over half a century ago, which is terrible and you know evil I just can't believe that so I guess probably some of that is just hangover from that I mean so it sounds like if you're in a position of power or just some sort of influence in your day-to-day life that then you would just not take that assumption is that what you're saying in terms of like institutional racism so you don't and challenge yourself ask yourself like and I've had a lot of teachers have these discussions and they have to check themselves am I teach am I treating this student the same way that I would treat every other student. Right. If, if I'm not, then what is it that I need to work on? What is it that I need to change to make sure that I am being equitable in my education? A lot of institutional racism is inequity, mm-hmm. plain and simple. And so we need to figure out what is it about the healthcare system that African-American women have the highest mortality rate after giving birth? Why is that? It doesn't matter if you're Beyonce, right. Beyonce documented her story, or Serena Williams, my all-time favorite athlete ever. I know. She's so wealthy, and she struggled to advocate for herself in the medical arena. So what is it about Black women that makes them have this health disparity, whether it's breast cancer mortality or um, giving uh, after giving birth? What is it that creates that disparity for individual people that are in those roles? And so- they have to have a part in that um, conversation as well. They can't just leave it to the institution and say that, um, well, these are policies and this is above me. Right, exactly. I know I read Serena Williams' birth story too and then recovery and I was just so mortified after reading that and, you know, cause she knew that she had this blood clot disorder and then the nurses and doctor didn't believe her that she knew that she had the symptoms and they weren't, taking her seriously. And here she is this wealthy and educated woman who they just aren't taking her seriously. So yeah, that, that was so eye opening. And then, yeah, just as you were saying that, why is there that disparity in healthcare and everything? And then, um, 
yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is appropriate to bring up into it too, but I know it's on a very less, a very smaller scale compared to racism. But I know that even on the female and male level that there's that disparity in healthcare too, you know, where a lot of times doctors don't believe women or they tell them their symptoms are all in their head. You know, I've even been told that before. And then if you add color on top of that female bias, it just kicks it up a notch. I feel like it's like, oh, you're a female plus, you know, you have a different color skin. So we're not going to believe you even more, which is, it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to switch gears now to talk about what social justice is and then why you think social justice learning is so important and at what age. So social justice for me has a lot, for me personally, it ties a lot to my faith and it ties to um, the dignity of the human person. So when you look at the human person, they are living their best life. Basically, they have the safety that they do. De- that they deserve. They have the food and shelter and education, and it's at an equitable level that everybody is seen as having dignity, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're a man or woman, whether they're immigrant or American citizen, everybody should be seen through the eyes of having dignity. And so for me, social justice education is teaching young people. And I've had that experience and um, teaching adults and young people about um, incorporating that into their life to see the world through that equity lens and to help challenge the status quo, challenge those biases that they might recognize. Um, I think it's important for students and especially young people to start very young and learning about social justice. It's important because it raises empathetic children who think outside of themselves while keeping um, their youthfulness, but they're still inquisitive and they're thinking outside of themselves. Children are very, very observant. Children are always very inquisitive. Their minds are sponges. So at their young age, it's important that we're feeding them with a lens of equity. We're feeding them tools so that they can grow into human beings that don't have as many biases as the generation before them and can really continue the work of um, social justice. A lot of people always call children the future of society. They're our future. They're our future. I don't believe that. I think they're our current. They have the power to really challenge us as adults. They have the power to really shape how we view things. And we've seen it by how quickly they mobilize on social media around causes like, um, gun control and making sure that they feel safe in their schools. Those are young people that really change that conversation. And so if we can teach people to use that, whatever power that they have at that young age, their voices, I think we can have more empathetic children and children that can really see people as people of dignity outside of themselves. And do you have any recommendations for, for children to kind of open up their, uh, equity lenses. And because I know that you said that you teach seventh through eighth graders at, at your church. And then obviously you, your role as a teacher, the Christian service coordinator at your school. Um, so I know that you have a lot of experience with, um, you know, with younger children. So, and preteens. So do you have any recommendations on, I guess, some concrete actions to take for, for that age group? Yes. Yeah, so, um, there was a question going around social media this week. And one of the question 
the question was for Black people to share a picture of themselves as a young person and, and ask the question and answer the question, what age were you when you first realized race or when you first realized that you were Black? And for most people, it was around four or five. And so I feel like, why are we not talking about social justice and racism at such a young age? People feel like it's something that you have to learn in high school or college. You take those high level classes. But studies show that preteens start to develop biases by the time they are in their teenage years. And they're often learned or modeled by their um parents. Um, the same thing goes with religious education. Unfortunately, by 12, they've decided their level of investment in faith and they might show up to church, but they've kind of checked out religiously. And so that that kind of formation of what who they are and what they are about starts at that teen level, has already set root in that teen level. So we need to start before that. And so one concrete thing that you can do is simply introduce books that have a variety of faces and people and places in it. It sounds so simple, but it, just like having representation in the media is important to a uh, value of self, having representation, if you have only white children, showing people that look different than them consistently whether it's through books or Doc McStuffins. Is she still popular? I don't know. Oh, what, what was that? What was the character? Doc McStuffins. I don't know. I haven't heard of that one. I'll have to see. I don't know. I'm yeah. still kind of getting into the kid yeah. stuff. Right now, my daughter's into Mickey Mouse. So, <laughs> Yes. Well, she's a cartoon. She's black and she's a little doctor. I don't really watch any kids' cartoons, but that was a, a huge um way to show representation of Black people to young people at such a young age in such a positive light. So that's one concrete way, just introducing age-appropriate books and um, media representation of people of diverse backgrounds in the most positive way. Often in the media, Black people are often the overrepresented in the negative light in the news. And so it's nice to counter that with your children. It's important to share the news. We don't want to shield them too much that they live in this bubble. And I've seen it a lot for some of my high school students. They live in this bubble that they then become just oversaturated with knowledge and information. It's great for them to gradually learn about current events that are happening. They see that there are people protesting. They might, they will wonder why are people protesting? It's up to you to answer that because they're going to find an answer from someone Little Johnny that talks too much on the playground will say something. And you want to be able to answer that question before little Johnny starts saying stuff. Um, and so I think those are two concrete ways. The most important, though, is to model the behavior consistently. If they see you react differently or um, showcase unconscious biases and then tell them not to have those, they will more likely follow how you act versus how you how, what you tell them to do. So walking the walk is really, really important. Children are really good, um, for lack of a better term, BS spotters. I've been called out by a lot of middle school campers. <laughs> Back in my day when I worked in a camp, they can spot when you're not being authentic. And it's amazing because it's you can just be yourself around them. But in being yourself, you also have to recognize that they are watching you. And so as parents or educators, it's important to continue to educate yourself, to correct yourself and showcase how you've learned or changed. Maybe you used to use a phrase or 
talk about a certain group of people incorrectly and you realize that that's not the way you're supposed to be talking and you've done that in front of your children, have a conversation with them. Mommy used to say this or daddy used to say this. Or remember when I told you not to play with that kid, there was actually no reason why you shouldn't. He's a great kid. If you want to be friends with that kid, be friends with that kid. Showcase that you are able to change so that they have no fear in acting and making mistakes, but then correcting those mistakes as well. Um, I can always highlight some books that are great suggestions for parents to purchase. And I can share that with you if you want to share it in the show notes as well. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to um, to get some of those book recommendations. And then also, I just before we get to the books, I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, the the news that you were talking about that just kind of reminded me since you brought up, you know, the demonstrations and the riots that are going on, that it, someone commented on one of our p- Facebook posts recently that they're asking um, cause we had shared some books and, um, their, their response was, you know, there's a difference between educating about race and racism, which I can see. Um, and then I, her opinion was, you know, she didn't want to talk about racism as much because she didn't want her kids to associate race with racism. Um, so anyway, I just, that kind of made me think, okay, well, I would love to get, you know, someone's perspective who is really involved in social justice and is in the thick of it just to get your opinion on, you know, is that something to introduce kids at an early age? You know, should we be buying board? Cause I saw a couple board books, like one was like Harriet Tubman, obviously, you know, there, there's other kid books that are just diverse, just showcasing diverse faces, but then should we also introduce racism and at what age do you think, or should we be talking about both? I guess. I think we should be talking about both because um, it's great to talk about the injustice that black people or other people of color experience. And it's important for them so that it lights a fire uh, desire to be anti-racist it may feel uncomfortable to you, but imagine the flip side of living in that skin, especially as a young kid. And I can't, I don't have time to tell you all the stories that I've had as a young person, but imagine living in that skin and not being able to escape that discomfort. That 10 minute conversation might be uncomfortable, but it could really help pivot a desire, a ch- start a desire for them to want to be that change maker in their friend group, in their school, with their friends. And children are powerful even at that very young age. There are books that talk about racism in a very kid-appropriate way. And then there are also books that showcase amazing Black leaders, Black inventors, Black scientists, or just showing Black children being joyful and enjoying themselves. But then there are also really instructive social justice books that break it down to a kid and show something as simple as disparity in a way that a child can understand. They show little Johnny and little Ricky hanging together and the disparities that they, that they experience at their age. How many people remember Trayvon Martin? He was a young kid. Um, he was not treated as such in the media because, um, it would be too horrible to say that a young kid, a young teenager was murdered, but, there's books about his experience. So so for another teenager, they can relate to something like that, unfortunately. But then they also are not being um, pandered to um, and they're not getting information that is above their 
comprehension level as well. But you would know your kid best, but I there are so many age-appropriate versions of news and social justice issues. Um, Catholic Relief Services has educational videos that people often share in elementary schools. And so they break down issues like immigration. They break down issues like law and racism in a way that is with info- infographics and um, beautiful music and skits in a way that people can really understand. So there's so many things that you can do. Um, two other things that I forgot to say, um, I've gotten questions from people that have asked if it's appropriate to take their kids to rallies or protests. Um, I've been to the March for Life. There have been plenty of people that take their children there. So I think a protest is definitely appropriate for a young person. Obviously, again, you know your kid's capability in st- for standing in the middle of the street for a long time. Obviously, exercise um, right judgment and safety. But one activity that is really great is to make a sign. And in making that sign, explain what that sign symbolizes why this is important and how this simple action is an expression of being anti-racist and is working towards social justice. Students have written letters to their politicians. This might be something for middle school or those that have the comprehension to be able to write an essay or a short letter. They can write to politicians about issues that are important to them. And I've seen examples of students that if prompted what they would like to change in the world, they've chosen to change issues that don't affect them, but affect others. And so that's an example of social justice education transforming the hearts and minds of young people. No, I really like those. Those are really great. And that actually reminded me of a question too that I had for you that I just wanted to ask you about what phrases that are acceptable and not acceptable to say, since obviously, again, like as as I said at the beginning of the show, I feel like so so much has changed recently on the verbiage and everything. So so I guess, are there any other phrases that, um, you know, we should change? You know, obviously we talked about not saying I'm not racist to saying, you know, that you're anti-racist and then don't say I don't see color, um, those sorts of phrases. And I guess, are there any other phrases that kind of stick out in your head that that you wish that people wouldn't say things a certain way or, you know, I guess, act act in that way? Oh, well, I mean, there's so many microaggressions. And I think um, one thing that people that are reading, if they don't know what a, a microaggression is, just a phrase that you might say that seems well-meaning and um, is like, oh, well, I don't see color. Or something that I always got was, you're so articulate. That doesn't sound terrible, right? You're so articulate. But it actually is highlighting for a lot of people of color, depending on where they've come from or where they come from, in order to advance yourself, you are taught that you have to sound a certain way. It is often it's often equated with whiteness. And so when someone says you're so articulate, either because of where you come from or your nationality or um, what you look like, it it is a microaggression. Um, or if you just are like, oh, there's two black people in the workforce and you keep saying each other's names at the same way. And it's not because, and they don't look anything alike. People think I look like um, the actress Crazy Eyes, who played Crazy Eyes, Uzo. I look nothing mm-hmm. like her, but that's the only other 
black women of media that they might know that's Nigerian. And so they they just like to be like, you look just like Uzo. And I'm like, I, the only thing we have in common is that we're both Nigerian. That's it. And we both have a gap. I have a gap in my smile, but um, that, that kind of reminds me of whenever, uh, you know, it, whenever people of different ethnicity um, see me a lot of times that they say, Oh, you look just like Julia Roberts. <laughs> I'm always like, uh. I think we're just white and brunette. I don't think we look the same, but yeah, I can relate. To but that. that makes sense. If you don't have experiences with a lot of white people and you can easily like conflate them as like one big blob of people, like blonde, blonde exactly. ball, Julia Roberts or, or, or brunette. Yeah, so exactly. That's that happens. But sometimes in a workforce, it could be months and they still haven't learned your name or they still haven't figured it out. My sister went a whole school year with her teacher saying her name incorrectly and she corrected her at least 20 times. And my sister is so shy. Wow. And she was like, after the 20th time, I mean, I don't, my, my name is five letters. I don't know why it's so hard to say my name. And I remember talking to her at graduation and the, the teacher was like, oh, congratulations. And she said her name incorrectly. And I was like, who are you talking about? She's like, your sister. And I was like, that's not how you say her name. And she's like, well, she never said anything when I kept saying it incorrectly. And I said, okay, well, that kind of degrades like her, again, her value, her main, her name means something way it sounds right um there's so many others like i told you about the it's so hard to pronounce your name where are you actually from you look so exotic where are you from? or um, or even just when people are acting out in protest let them act out in protest someone might be someone might say um things like well I never said that I was racist or racism doesn't exist anymore because this law, this law, mm-hmm. this situation, if it did, then we would still have segregation, yada, yada, yada. And so using past historical accomplishments to then dismiss the fact that racism still exists also dismisses the hurts, the pain, the trauma that people experience every day as people of color that experience racism right. every day, whether it's on a microaggression level or great egregious level, but to say that it doesn't exist because you have blank friend, blank friend, blank friend, and your kids does not mean that it that whole structure does not exist. Or if you say a joke that's inappropriate and someone calls you out on it, say I'm sorry Mm -hmm. or I didn't know. Not it was a joke. Calm down. You're being too Mm -hmm. dramatic or. I can't, everybody's so sensitive these days. That's my other favorite one. I can't say anything because everybody is so sensitive <laughs> these days. Like, you know, people are just coming into their own and calling you out. And my all-time, like, favorite, but when I say favorite, I hate it. I just want to play devil's advocate here. The devil doesn't need an advocate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he has a lot of things out there. But um, I just feel like, they're again it's trying to poke holes in um the movement poking holes in struggle and devaluing that struggle at the same time and so when Mm -hmm. you say phrases like that you always have to think about how it's perceived and it's always okay to say please let me know if this is offensive or i hope i'm not offending you by saying this now if you say that and you think it might be offensive perhaps 
<laughs> don't say it. But if you say it and you at least cushion it with that, then you've provided an opportunity for you to learn if you have been or if you are being offensive. Right, exactly. Well, I think part of it is just as I was saying at the beginning of the podcast, that so much of the phrasing has changed since, I mean, I didn't learn any of this phrasing in my Black history class. And I know it was like 10 years ago. So that's why I was like, uh, I didn't learn any of this proper phrasing. Like I learned obviously about like all important Black figures, you know, everything that you learn in Black history, but not all these phrases. So I- I And I think communication becomes- more and more um, global. Mm-hmm. It's important to like re re understand phrasing and communication changes and what becomes socially acceptable changes. Right. I've watched sitcoms from the nineties that I loved, and then now I cringe at some of the scenes because I'm just like, why was this acceptable? This is so. <laughs> oh yeah, and some of those nineties shows are pretty racist. When you look. yes, and it's like not because I'm more sensitive; it's because I'm more knowledgeable, and right. so. The- as people become more knowledgeable, their tolerance for injustice or ignorance decreases. And so people always counter, well, you guys are just sensitive. No, we've chosen to widen our lens and educate ourselves. And by educating ourselves, changing our behavior. Um, and I guess a final thing is, um, I often get the argument that, well, my friend that's Black doesn't agree with this or doesn't care. Right. And da, 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 da. There's diversity even among the black amongst the black community. Right. There are a lot of people that are still on their racial journey because a they might have conformed to the idea that they need to assimilate into whiteness and white culture, and so they have then chosen themselves to not see color, not see their own color, and then hopefully put blinders on to racism or microaggressions that they're experiencing. I was one of those people, especially mm. in high school and early college. And I was blessed to be in a situation in college that really opened up my eyes. And I, like you're talking about, I took Africana studies for the first time. I really investigated um, the experiences that I had kind of buried in within me and ignored because it was just too harmful to deal with. And so I put blinders on and I tried to assimilate and be a social chameleon Mm -hmm. as I call myself, but that is a disservice to my beautiful uniqueness. And some people are still on that journey. And sometimes while on their journey, they might say or believe things that um, are contrary to the overall movement for racial justice or might help ease your palate. You might be like, well, my black friend doesn't right. think that thing. I don't see color is offensive. So it's not offensive, but mm-hmm. the vast majority of black people find that offensive. So maybe try to, View multiple viewpoints and then make your own decision and really surround yourself with people that challenge your viewpoints. Because if you're only surrounding yourself with people and media and views that make you feel comfortable, then you're never, ever going to be changing because change does not exist in comfort. Right. Gosh, I really enjoyed our conversation so much and learned so much from you that, you know, obviously, I guess my Black history class and other books that I've read that, you know, they, they're not as current as they as I need them to be. <laughs> they usually stop at Martin Luther King, sadly. Oh, okay. Maybe that's what it is. So I, I know that you mentioned books. Maybe you could just go over some of the book recommendations, a few of them, and then we'll link the rest in our show notes. Okay. Um, for parents, if you would like to read a book, one that's overly popular and currently sold out on Amazon, but I'm hoping they will restock it soon, is called White Fragility. 
It has a title that might scare you, but it talks about the concept of um, white privilege and how you how that um, affects your reactions to the um, anti-racism movement and how you can then use your power and privilege to help promote anti-racism in the in this country. Um, another recommendation would be actually a movie called Thirteenth. We talked about money and a little bit in kind of the power industrial structure. And so that talks about the prison structure and how that disproportionately affects people and families of color and how that's affected the black family. And when we talk about pro-life, I also talk about, I also believe in maintaining and protecting the family structure and how over-criminalization of black people has negatively affected um, those families of color. Um, one book that's really great for kids is called Something Happened in Our Town. It's a children's book about racial injustice. And so it's written for young people to understand, but it's um, it helps teach about racial injustice in a way that is not um, too highbrow for children. And um, there's so many good books like Claudette Coven's Twice Toward Justice. It's, um, I think, like a one, it's won a lot of awards for children's books, but it talks about um, social justice and changes in our history. And I will help link some other ones below. There's so many that just talk about people, uh, Black people and other people of color. Separate is Never Equal is another great book. And it just helps, it's a children's book and it helps them realize that certain things that have happened in the past were not right. And then they can learn how to um, recognize when things aren't right in their situation as well. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And then again, check out the show notes. And I know that we posted some, a couple, actually more than a couple, <laughs> we posted, I think like 10 on our Instagram stories too, for younger kids. So well, Getchy, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed our conversation and I could have talked with you much longer too. I just <laughs> learned, felt like I was learning so much. So thank you so much again for coming on last minute. I really appreciate it. No problem. Have a great night. Thank you. You too.